And welcome back to Story Matters, a weekly podcast about stories and the artists who tell them. Uh, My name... Um, what are you doing, buddy? I <clears throat> I just noticed this. I was I came into your studio, and there was a mic here, and I just thought... You just kind of naturally... You know that this is not Story this is Hollywood Hustle. No, I get that, but it's... I. Okay, look. The thing but is, I, I can't. Like, I can't afford a studio. I can't afford the studio I'm working at. Can man, I just? Do I know you, you have. I know, do you just go to other podcasts and just start recording? Don't blow my cover, but yes. Do you not have your own equipment? No, that's why I need. Can you just? I need. I need this. Hey man. Okay. Well, Hi there. Welcome back to Story Matters. No, 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 it's not your... <laughs> you gotta have a support system. It's so easy. Especially that first six months. That first six months is brutal if you don't have anybody here, um, because you you move to LA and you have these dreams of making it, or you have these dreams of at least feeling like you're making it, making strides. And there's so much wading in the pool. There's so much just treading water that it's easy to get discouraged right away. Right away. Hello and welcome to the Hollywood Hustle Podcast, where we bring the stories and struggles of artists climbing the ladder of success and how they survive the city of dreams, Los Angeles. As always, I'm your host, Daniel, and with me as always is what? Michael? Michael? Oh, that's right. He's up in San Francisco, partying and out, wedding stuff. Sorry. Uh, I guess it's just me. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, anyways, uh, I'm here to talk to you today about our wonderful episode with Mr. John Christie, actor, director, writer, creator, tall guy. He's fantastic. He's full of life, and he is amazing. Uh, just a few updates. Uh, we have a, a great amount of episodes out right now. I believe we have 14 episodes total out. Uh, we have musicians, magicians, uh, actors, creators, directors, just please check it out. Take a listen if you haven't. If you've missed one, go back and listen to it. They're still there. They're still there for you to listen to. And, and the great thing about podcasting is you can stop and start. So I know most people listen to podcasts when they're working out or when they're driving to work or from work or you know during work. Uh, but you can always pause it and you can always resume it later, um, which is the great thing about podcasts. So that's why I never want to cut these too short. So if you feel like it's too long, I'm sorry. Um, but I'm trying to gi- we're trying to give you the most meat of information that we can, and we're really excited about that. We're also really excited about what we have coming up. Uh, we're recording today, actually, with uh, someone very cool. We're also, we, have, we just finished a few other recordings with some different people. We already have other people lined up. I mean, we can't even, like, contain a schedule for all the people that people are suggesting to us. Um, that people that are me- messaging us asking about being on the show, which is, I mean, more than I could ever have dreamed that anybody would ever just want to be on the show and talk to me and talk to Michael. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I think part of it is though I did know people would want to hear their stories told. And I think that's, that's really exciting. So that's fantastic. If you haven't had a chance to, we're always posting on Instagram at Hollywood hustle podcast at Gmail, uh, Hollywood hustle podcast, uh, on Instagram, our email is Hollywood hustle podcast at gmail.com. Please email email us. If you know someone that would be great, that has an artistic take on anything, any kind of artistry, uh, cooking, painting, uh, uh, statue, making statues, whatever, uh, send us an email. We'll talk to them. We'll see what we can do. Um, and if you haven't seen our Twitter at LA hustlecast at gmail.com, uh, we post there at least 10 times a day, uh, with some great stuff. We'd love to hear your thoughts on some things. We always ask questions and we want to hear from you. So definitely reply back to us. So you know what? I don't want to talk anymore. I want you to hear this great episode. It's, 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 
one of my favorites that we've had. It's a guy from Dallas, so which is where I'm from. So that was awesome to have that connection uh, once again, like we had with Kurt. So please, so, oh yeah, there was there's one more thing I wanted to talk about. Um, Kurt Mega, you think you can come in? And take over our show because your show is on hiatus. So you have to do story matters somewhere else while your show is on hiatus. No, sir. This is Hollywood Hustle Podcast. Yeah, we had you on as our first guest, and that was great. But we need you to calm down, sir, or this is going to get real. All right? But anyways, I digress. In Act 1 with John Christie, I talk one-on-one with John about growing growing up and being homeschooled and playing basketball in Dallas. We discuss the origin of his love for theater and film, as well as why and how he made the move to L.A. John discusses acting, directing, and writing, his approach to each, and his opinions of some of today's norms in each area. Finally, we discuss his newest venture, the web series Confessionals. From creation to crowdfunding to filming, we talk about it all. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this energetic conversation with actor, director, writer, creator, tall guy, Mr. John Christie. Today I'm sitting with John Christie, who is no stranger to the stage and screen. He's an actor, writer, director, and now producer from Dallas, Texas. As an actor, John can be seen in works such as Hold Your Peace, The Doll Dynasty, Glee, and his new web series, Confessionals, where he plays an overeager bodyguard named Jimmy. John is also the creator and writer and director of the six-episode series. John has also written several produced plays, including The Zookeeper's Journal in Dallas, Texas, and here in L.A., he's had produced Happy No Year and Exotic Flavors of Bradley Copperfield. He was recently in a short film uh, written and directed by Tom Cavanaugh called Poker Night, Please welcome to the show, Mr. John Christie. Yay! Hey, John. Hey, hey, thanks. Hey. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks for driving all the way out here. And oh, not a problem. Parking and walking upstairs and yes. opening oh, doors. Oh, man. It's, it's tough. The, it's, it was a lot of work getting here, but thank God I made it. I, absolutely. Uh, so we're just going to start simply. Yeah. Um, where did it all begin for John Christie family-wise? Like, what's your family like? Oh. Uh you know, how, how have they um, infused you and directed, supported and directed you where you are now? Oh, it's so funny uh, that uh, my family is very different from me. I'm like definitely the black sheep. Everyone says they're the black sheep, but I'm really so much the black sheep. Everyone else in my family is very quiet, very introverted. Um, not that they don't like to socialize, um, but they're definitely not, hey, look at me. And, you know, I bang the door down and just do impressions and be silly. And they're not like that at all. Mm-hmm. Um so I was homeschooled growing up. Um, me and my, and my two brothers were. Um, so it was a very in-house kind of living condition growing up. Right. Um, obviously, you socialize. You go do basketball, extracurricular activities, or you go to church, and you, you socialize in those kind of senses. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was definitely mostly just us growing up. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, growing up in Dallas, Texas, conservatives, um, just very quiet people. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that all played into me wanting to bust out of that mm-hmm. and just kind of say, hey, look at me, I'm here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You do, you coming from Dallas, as many of the listeners know already by now, um, it is a feeling of almost like you have to be very internal. Mm-hmm. Like you don't get to like really physically let yourself be open. Correct. And, yeah. and if you do, you're looked at as kind of like, <laughs> that's really, and I think that comes from like that old cowboy style yeah. like you, you you don't talk a lot 
and when you do it, and you, you your presence should be more subtle and sure. meaningful yeah. instead of over the top dramatic, yes. as, yes. as I'm sure you are, and I am as well. Yes. Um, when what's your first memory of theater and film? Oh, uh, my first memory of theater was definitely a play that a, a childhood friend took me to, The Miracle Walk, Miracle Worker. Mm. Um, I knew nothing of that story. I was probably nine, ten years old at the time, and it was my very first play ever. Um, didn't really know what to expect, but I was floored. What I what I remembered the most about that wasn't even the performances themselves. It was just the atmosphere of the stage and the theater and the lights and just like the fame of that, mm-hmm. and you know, just imagining what it would be like to be one of those people on that stage, and that was mm-hmm. all I could think about the whole performance was, this is so cool! <laughs> it felt like the, the the lights were shining on me, and, mm-hmm. and, and that was uh, where I was supposed to end up and go. Right. It just didn't happen right away. And that's the story of Helen Keller, correct? The miracle worker about her and her assistant? Correct, and yes, so. yeah. Um, so uh, that was my first experience with theater, though I didn't actually get to pursue that until college, so mm. it was a long, long time away from that. As far as uh, film, uh, I actually grew up watching a lot of like animated features, mm. um, so my very first original love was like voice acting and what it was like to voice cartoons, um, which is actually what my wife does for a living, mm. she does that. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so Aladdin, Lion King, those were kind of my earliest memories of film and how bright and colorful they were and how fun they were. And and obviously as a cartoon, you don't have restrictions. You right. can kind of be yourself and be big and bold, and that was really fun. Which one was your Which one's your favorite Disney animated film? Like of the, of the classics? Of the classics, yeah. God, I mean, I feel like it has to be Aladdin. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't get better than the genie. He's, de- he's definitely in that... Like, it's between Aladdin and Lion King for me. Mm-hmm. I'm always, it's always like, how do I feel at this moment? Yes. Every day <laughs> is different. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so you didn't get to per- any pursue any kind of theatrical acting until college? Did you not, did you, didn't do anything as a kid? Or? I did nothing as a kid. Um, I was a basketball nut mm-hmm. growing up. Uh, I'm six foot five. Obviously, you guys can't see me, but I'm six foot five. Um, and there'll be pictures. You'll see them yeah, oh, yes, tower yes. over myself. And yes, 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 yes. Um, and uh, I was always one of the taller kids in any group, including on the basketball court. And so that was a sport that I kind of gravitated towards because I was, you know, I wasn't completely uncoordinated. I could catch balls and, sh- and put balls in baskets. So that was fun growing up. And then. Uh, after the first, you know, peewee leagues and whatnot, and when you get to middle school and things start to get a little bit more competitive, you actually have to try out. Or points and actually matter. Points matter. Yeah, all that <laughs> stuff. Um, I I had grown out of most of my awkward phase mm-hmm. of the physicality right. and was able to actually put the ball in the basket for real. And uh, so I did basketball for 10 years um, and was thinking about pursuing it in college. Um, but I blame my high school coaches, if you're listening to this, for not... <laughs> teaching me how to dribble a basketball. Because, <laughs> as he shakes his fist. Because wow, as if you if you watch NBA these days, the game has evolved to where now seven-footers are point guards and they're dribbling the ball up the floor. And you're almost not relevant anymore unless you can both handle the ball and shoot the three ball, mm-hmm. which thankfully I was able to shoot the three ball growing up despite my coaches being pissed at me for taking those shots. <laughs> but the, the handle was my weakest part of my game. I couldn't dribble the ball to save my life. Mm-hmm. And when I got to college... And everyone is seven foot tall, mm-hmm. and I'm still six five, and now the size of a shooting guard, 
I need to be able to know how to handle the ball, and I could not. So after a couple summer practices, I was like, I think this will be my leave from basketball, and I'm going to go try theater, which I've been meaning to do, and it's actually a college major, which is very exciting, so I'm going to go do that. Right, absolutely. Now, one thing I like to talk to people, and we've, we've had several athletes on the show, and one thing I like to ask is, for, uh, with everything that you do, voice uh, I know you've done a little bit of voice acting before, right? Um, acting, directing, all the writing. What have you taken from playing basketball that's kind of helped you maybe in those fields? Well, is there one specific thing maybe that you feel you can attribute from that's you, that's part of you now because of playing basketball? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I have never even given that a second thought. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I was to wager a guess, mm-hmm. um, it would probably be the physical aspect mm-hmm. um, because there's so much physicality that goes into acting. Mm-hmm. You have to get the character in your body for it to come out in your voice and your performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and with basketball, you, you, you use your body for everything, your mm-hmm. arms, your legs, your chest, you use it all, all at the same time. Right. So to be able to take, to take that physical quality um, and just knowing how to move the body, really, because you'd be surprised how many young actors think it's all just about what you say and not about embodying it. No. Um, I don't want to pick on Gal Gadot, but I just watched Wonder Woman mm-hmm. a couple days ago, and uh, there were a couple of moments. She was good. I'm not saying she wasn't good in the film, but there were a couple of moments where she was being strong in her voice. But I saw her arm was kind of limp and bent when she was pointing. And it's like, this is a strong moment for you. You need to stretch that arm out. And we need to see some muscle. We need to see some strength there in your body that was missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can just be attributed to her. I mean, in my opinion, maybe it was a directing choice and I'm missing something. I have to go watch it again. But right. in my opinion, in that moment, it could have just been her not recognizing that physical aspect mm-hmm. that needed to also be there. Right. You can send all hate mail to John and Christy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just oh, kidding. Goodness. Just kidding. Um, so what is, so I kind of asked about your first experience with theater and stuff. What's your first uh, memory of like imagination and creation? Um, not many people know this. Ooh. Very few people, even in my close friends, know this. Just because I don't, I don't talk about it. It's not really even relevant mm-hmm. anymore. But um, there was a show growing up called uh, Beetleborgs. Oh, Beetleborgs, yes. Big Bad Beetleborgs. And uh, the whole premise of the show, for those that don't know, is the villain would draw characters and then bring the, the characters from the page to life. Mm-hmm. And it was something about that that I just really, really loved. I'm not an artist in any sense of the word. I'm really terrible at it. But I was drawn to drawing characters. So I have boxes of monster drawings. Mm -hmm. And what's so funny is in the show, they crumple the page and then they unfold it and then they create their monster. It wasn't like a clean sheet. Mm-hmm. So every time I draw a monster, I'd crumple the paper <laughs> and smooth it out, and hope it comes to life. That was that was that was the deal. Why do you want to destroy us, John? <laughs> I don't want to destroy you, but I remember um, after the first few creative monsters, or like or like the imaginings, like the makeup monsters, I had to get a bit more creative with it because I have I have probably over a thousand of these. Oh, like wow. I have I drew a lot of these. So after the first couple dozen, you start running out of ideas for original monsters. So then I became, I, I, you know, this, this water cup here, I would turn this water cup into a good guy, or I'd turn this microphone into a bad guy, and he'd have, like, 
torches on Lunt's leg so he could fly and like cannons coming out. Like yeah. I would just create any inanimate object or food or animal and turn it into either a good guy or a bad guy. Okay. Yeah. That's I mean that's such a child way I think of looking at things where it's good and bad. Where mm-hmm. it's, it's black and white. Mm-hmm. There's no gray area. Mm-hmm. There's no breaking bad type area. <laughs> yes. You know, it's, it's either you're a villain or you're a hero. And I always, whenever he was a bad guy, I put a little V between his eyes so you could see like the brow, the ur, the grr. And then <laughs> yeah. If it was ever a good guy, I gave him like a little smile on his face. <laughs> that, that, that perfect jawbone. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> um, what were you like as a student? Uh, well, uh, with with homeschooling, it was very student driven. Mm-hmm. We were given our curriculum to do for the day, for the week. It was all kind of outlined for us. And mm-hmm. my mom, uh, aka my teacher, basically said, "This is what you, this is your homework for the day. This is your homework for the week. You can do it at your own pace, whatever you want. Um, but just know that it has to get done. Right. So if you want to go play with your friends in the afternoon, you got to get it all done in the morning before you can go out. Or if you'd rather sleep in today." Um, watch Price is Right, which was a morning ritual for us in the, in the house. We'd watch Price is Right. Uh, and then start school at like 11 o'clock in the morning. You do that. But just know that you'll be working longer into the afternoon. Right. So uh, it, it was a really – I enjoyed that because it gave me the freedom to kind of dictate how I wanted to do my day rather than every day I get up at 7, I go to school, first class is at 8 or whatever, and then lunch is at 12 and then whatever. It, that's very – to me, a very monotonous way to live. Whereas with school, with with the way we were brought up in school, mm-hmm. we kind of got to make every day our own and make every day different. Mm-hmm. Um, if I wanted to blast through in three hours and knock it all out, close the doors and just knock it out, mm-hmm. I can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not locked into doing this subject for an hour. Mm-hmm. If I work hard, I get that done in 20 minutes mm-hmm. and I can move on to the next subject. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that taught me time management and it also taught me um, the value of hard work that if you work hard it there's benefit to that there's reward for that because it's more time for yourself and what you selfishly want to do later on in the day right so absolutely um wait now i know a lot of people who when people talk about uh, homeschooling and stuff like that a lot of the cons that people when they go well should we homeschool our kid is the idea of socializing mm-hmm. the kid Mm. Um, did you feel like you were not so uh, sociable or socialized as a, as a kid since you were homeschooled? I feel like I lucked out. I had the social gene kind of in me. Um, I mean, obviously, every every kid's awkward mm. in their own way, regardless of if they're homeschooled or public schooling. Um, so I def- there was definitely an awkwardness about me and just a timidity and a, you know, I'm not sure, is this person going to like me? And, you know, self-image issues and all that. Um, but was there a handicap, a specific social handicap because of the homeschooling? I'd say no. Okay. Um, now, my brothers might be a different story. I have no idea. Right. Um, I can only tell from my own experience um, that, uh, I mean, obviously it helped having the church there to kind of mm-hmm. have people around of my own age and, right. and basketball growing up as well. Um, my teammates getting that mm-hmm. social aspect as well. And there were, uh, through those channels, uh, I've found a couple other kids who were also homeschooled doing the exact same thing I was who lived in my neighborhood. So we were all just kind of like our own homeschool mini club right. where we'd get our work done and go out and play later. Well, also nowadays I know they do like homeschool proms and mm-hmm. homeschool things. Yes, and I went to one of those actually. Places. So, so I think they've worked hard to keep, to get that stigma mm-hmm. and then help with that I think a lot. Yes. Um, what was, so you, you started theater when you were in, in, in college. Mm-hmm. Um, what were, what were your first roles? <laughs> um, 
My very first role ever was uh, Donnie Pride from the play Flaming Guns of the Purple Sage. Mm. It's a very, very fun Western play. It's like a Western horror. Um, there's lots of uh, disembodiments, people getting murdered and cut up into pieces and put in bags and mm. blood everywhere. And it's just a really, really, f- it, but it's fun. Like it's, it was very, very funny. Mm-hmm. And my character shows up in the very, very end of the play. Mm-hmm. The last, I have like, I think I counted nine lines. I had nine lines in the whole play and it was the very last scene of the play. Um, it's about this farmhand, not a farm, not a farmhand, but she owns land and she helps re, uh, recuperate. That's not the right word, but like people who get hurt in the rodeo, who fall off the horse and have to like regain their body strength and, and recover. Mm-hmm. She helps those men recover from those. So injuries. rehabilitation. Rehabilitation. Thank you for that word. Um, she helps rehabilitate these. Uh, you know, rodeo people. Um, and so my character was a big rodeo star who comes in at the end seeking her guidance and her help. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was pretty much like the pretty cowboy at the end of the play because this woman is kind of a, was kind of horn dog. So she, <laughs> she would like to get in the pants of these men. And uh, so I was all dolled up. I had like a really bright, shiny red and yellow, you know, a shirt mm-hmm. and uh, big assless chaps, <laughs> and the very last image of the play was me standing in the doorway, uh, facing upstage, and and the two women inside are just staring at my butt, and then I'm like, I have to bend down and dust something off my chaps so they get a good look at my behind. So that was that was my part. That was, that was my your, big. That was your that first, was first role. Thing. Yeah. Wow, that's uh, what a big thing to take on. I know. <laughs> I know. And I just sat back there looking pretty for like an hour and a half, and then I walk out, say my lines, stand in the door, and you see my butt. And what, what was the first role you got that you felt like you really had some meat in it that you could really sink your teeth in? That was the following year. It was my sophomore year. Mm-hmm. Um, I my very first year, I got cast in two plays, and it was bit parts mm-hmm. like that, and I was like, oh man want to act I don't feel like I'm acting Mm -hmm. in my sophomore year I think I got cast in every single play that 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 season um in some in some capacity and uh the second play of that of the winter semester uh was called the ruby sunrise and it was an amazing play it took place first act takes place in one time period and the second act it jumps ahead like a hundred years or something um and I was in the first act back in the past Mm -hmm. and it was uh, all about the television mm. and uh, the first girl who wanted to create a television way before it was even thought possible mm. having moving pictures and uh, I played the farmhand who finds her in this barn tinkering with stuff and so uh, it was all about me you know trying to help her out falling in love with her but she was too absorbed with her work she was too one you know single minded mm-hmm. she didn't have time for all of that and, mm-hmm. you know crushed you know crushed crushed my heart and things right. like that um and then she finds out that she was pregnant and because we had done it once off right. stage and now i'm the dad and all this stuff it was it was just a really and and then all that carries over into act two in the future with her descendant mm-hmm. um and uh it was just a real like i it, it i i was the lead role i was the male lead in act one and uh it was a big responsibility my acting teacher at college at the time was directing the piece and uh when i auditioned for it she told me this years later she didn't think she was going to cast me when i first auditioned she she was a fan of mine at the time she saw a lot of potential but she didn't think i was ready for a role like that mm-hmm. so early and uh i 
she told me I surprised her. She said, wow, John came to play. This is great. So I got a call back, and now I'm in the top three or four for the part, and I was really fighting. She said that. She said, you were fighting for that part. And uh, I just, I'm getting chills just talking about it. I, it. It's meant a lot that she said that to me, and she thought that much of me to trust me with that role. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, it was, it's still a favorite of mine to this day. You had to wear the chaps again, I'm sure. Oh, oh, it was it was a requirement. <laughs> was that in every role you were Oh, yeah, yeah. It was a little Easter egg there. <laughs> Always a connection to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, I was gonna ask was there something about you that because I mean obviously you played like a farmer, but you played a cowboy also. Mm. Was there something about you that they felt that you just played that rugged westerner? Uh, I really live th- in the desert. Kind I of really think it's just like that that aw shuck southern charm mm-hmm. that I, I I have that boy next door quality I guess mm-hmm. that just that that wide eyed. Naive. You know, but I'm from naive, but I'm from Texas, so it's like that. You know that. How to partner that uh, that that kind of quality? Ugh, yeah, kill me. I know. <laughs> it's, it's, the worst thing in the world is seeing someone on a show that's quote unquote from Texas, and it's like, this is Darla. She's from Texas. And, oh, hi, everybody. I'm like, who talks like no that? No one. No one in Texas like, talks like, like that. The only person unless you live in like El Paso, maybe. Yeah. So when did writing and directing and, and those other things you do, voiceovers, when did those all kind of come into your life? Those kind of fell into my lap unexpectedly. Uh, it was my third year in college, mm-hmm. and uh, my the, theater, the, the head of the theater department at the time was doing orientation for all the, the new students and the old who, who came, mm-hmm. and uh, letting us all know that this was going to be the first year where they were going to do a student-directed piece that they wanted an original work for based on this book of the college. They were promoting the Poe Shadow, mm-hmm. which was a big, uh, which was a, a, a book about the life of Edgar Allan Poe. It wasn't about his book, The Raven, it was about him. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael but, just played Edgar Allan Poe. In a, in a, did you really? Play. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah last uh, November, I uh, over at Theater Unleashed in North Hollywood. Oh, um, and, and it was another original. Yeah, it was an original work, an amalgamation of all of his stories, but him as the central character. But it was fictitious. Like, he was at the heart of this thriller. Oh, wow. Yeah, a lot of the events that sometimes happen in his short stories end up falling back on him. Wow, that's so funny. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so he he was encouraging the, the students to come up with ideas to write either about something based on the book itself or just using the works of Edgar Allan Poe. And he was giving examples like you could turn a poem into a song or into a rap. And he looked at me and he winked because he knew I liked writing raps just for fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I took that, like it hit me when he'd said that. I'm like, oh, there is that possibility of a rap. Oh, that'd be really fun to do that. Oh, and I can make another poem a song. Oh, and then I can make another poem like a spoken poetry rather than like in poetic form. It could be more of like a beat rap kind of a, of a deal. And so when I started thinking about all the different ways you could turn a poem into some other form of art, mm-hmm. it just got my wheels turning. And so I, I immediately that night came up with characters and a plot and I came up with a story mm-hmm. that night. It hit me like a wave of inspiration. And uh, I'd never written anything like that before. I'd written maybe a short story for school or some other poems or things like that, but never tackled like a narrative before. Mm-hmm. Like I was such a long narrative for the stage. So, but I, I went for it. And uh, two months later I presented it and I was actually the only one who even attempted it in the whole school to come up with something that met a suggestion that he made. And uh, it was approved hands down. And so I did a student direct piece I, it was called Dream was the name of the play and uh, it turned into the first and I want to say only up to this point 
uh, the only student-directed piece that got an encore in the spring because there were so many people who wanted to see it. Oh, that's um, cool. and even uh, season ticket holders for the main stage college mm-hmm. wanted to come see it, but they were turned away because we were in the student lab and it was so small. Right. And so after so many emails from disgruntled patrons not getting in, they were like, we'll bring it back for the spring. So it was such an honor, and I'm glad it went over so well. Um, and that was something you wrote? I wrote that you, originally. Okay. Everything okay. was mine. Um, and uh, what's so funny is in the encore in the spring, another local theater producer in Dallas came and saw it and wanted to do it. Mm. So he took that play and reproduced it later that next summer, and I actually got to be in the play that oh, time. Awesome. So that was awesome. That's cool. Yeah. Um, how about voiceover? When did voiceovers kind of land? Voiceover still hasn't quite landed on me. Okay. I thought I'd broken in uh, a few years ago, mm-hmm. um, uh, back when we were still living in, living in Texas. Because my wife Jeremy, she works for, she still works for Funimation, but she works there quite often back then. Um, and I'd been called in for a couple of auditions and uh, ended up getting cast in a sh- uh, the show Fairy Tale, mm-hmm. um, which for those in the anime community know is one of the biggest shows out there right now and Sherry's actually the lead role in that show um and I'd gotten an actual role it was a small one but he had a name and he had multiple episodes he kept coming back as a recurring role and so so cool and uh I went in one time and then never went in again and I was like huh I guess his character didn't come back for quite a while but I did my research and saw that no he's in the the sixth episode and the eighth episode and haven't been in there in a long time so wonder what's going on and then when they premiered the first episode that I had recorded they ended up getting somebody else oh, so I, I got recast and that was a big disappointment so after a couple more auditions it just kind of stopped and I didn't really get to, to do any of that um, but just in the last couple of years here in LA I'm starting to get more auditions um, a lot of it actually from confessionals uh, because I'm surrounding myself with uh, voice actors uh, who are on screen uh, who also kind of do their own VO production companies. Uh, they're going, oh, you're an actor too. Why don't you uh, read for this role? So um, that's opening up some doors for me as well. But I'm still trying. It's 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 a whole different... I mean, it feels like every ven- every media of acting has their own in crowd. You, get, you have the L.A. theater, then you have the L.A. short film crowd, and you have the L.A. indie film crowd, and you have the, the, the L.A. VO crowd. It, everyone's kind of sectioned off, and it's hard to get in the different groups unless you know people. Mm-hmm. I think it's also interesting when you decide, when someone decides to go into a different field like that, like voiceover, where you're like, oh, I'm going to go into commercial acting. It's almost like starting over. It is. In it a is. Whole new way. Like, it's like, I because then you're like well I've never done it and they're going to look oh well, you've never done it you don't have it's insane to show me you, you could be you could have started three or four short films mm-hmm. that won all these Sundance Awards mm-hmm. and then you, you, you decide I want to go into voice acting mm-hmm. and you are literally starting over that means almost nothing now, I'm not saying it means nothing but like because it's a whole different art form. It's a whole there's a whole different way well, of doing it. You have to have a good voice. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. that's true. Have, like a voice that's interesting. That, yeah, and and also be able to do very especially have a, a successful career. Do mm-hmm. various different voices mm-hmm. and different styles and accents and I mean it's that is your that is your your instrument. Yes, in that, in that field, um, you don't get you don't rely on your physicality as much. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've talked about you're from Dallas. You moved here from there. Um, what what was when was the decision made to move? What what kind of caused the decision? Hey, let's 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 drop it and let's let's move. Share me, share me was the the reason. Um, 
but she wasn't the only reason. And uh, this was before we got married. We had been dating for two years at this time mm-hmm. when she decided I need to I need to move to LA. It can't just be a visit. It can't just be a two three month stint. Like I gotta go go and, mm-hmm. and make it happen. And uh, this was back in 2011, late 2011, and she was. She was begging me to go with her, and I and I said, Jeremy, I, I I can't be that guy who just drops his life here because I I I had just gotten rolling with my theater production company, Dark uh, Triple J Productions at the time, and we were on a roll, we were making money, and our company was growing, and uh, so and I and I, we were starting to get recognized and developing these networking connections, and I said I can't just drop it all to go to L.A. when I have nothing in L.A. I have nothing. You have representation ready for you to, to go out there. That was another reason she wanted to go was she had a manager that was saying, you need to come out here. We can really move you. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was like, I can't I can't do that unless I have something going for me there. If I can find something for me, then then mm-hmm. we'll talk about it. And uh, things, things started to happen. Uh, I was working for a place called Kidville at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this child... Uh, it, it, it's 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 like a recreation facility for kids. You do gymnastics classes and sports classes and music classes. It was a really fun, really fun hip happening place for moms and young kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been working there for a couple of years. And there was a, they were opening a branch in Brentwood, mm-hmm. and it was happening right around the time that Jeremy wanted to move out. And I was like, well, I talked to my boss, and she was like, can you talk to the franchise owner over there and see if you can get me a job? And they were like, absolutely, we're opening in that summer. You can jump right in. And I was like, oh, wow, so I have instant employment. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then that fall, 2011, that fall, Sherry uh, what, what, uh, took a trip to L.A. to get new headshots and to reconnect with her managers and chit-chat about you know strategy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went with her just for the experience because I'd never been to L.A. before. And uh, the manager said, uh, after we met with them, they were like, yeah, you, you have a good look. You could really... You know, do some commercials maybe. We'd love to te- try you out with some some film as well. Um, so yeah, we we would we would rep you. And I was like, huh, okay. So it's an employment and people who would represent me as an actor. Mm-hmm. I didn't even believe them at the time. It was wasn't until like a, a few weeks later when I asked Jeremy. So they were just saying that, right? They didn't. Right. They were just they're trying to get, get her. There. They were just trying to get her out there. Yeah. They they would say whatever they, it took mm-hmm. to get her out there. Yeah. And Sherman was like, no, they're still asking about you now that i'm already going they're still asking about you is john coming too we're excited about john and i was like oh maybe they were genuine about that so then it was like okay i've got employment i've got her up but what am i how, how am i gonna live um um i didn't want to live with Jeremy before we were married that was kind of a personal moral decision i wanted to make for me mm-hmm. so living with her wasn't an option for me i needed to find roommates and i didn't know anyone there mm-hmm. but somebody who uh, a good 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 friend of mine from colin, colin college uh was thinking about making the la jump as well and uh he found out that we were thinking about it and he goes i'll go with you let's let's do it mm-hmm. i'm like huh Instant employment, representation. Now I've got some a good friend of mine who wants to go with me mm-hmm. and make this happen together. Mm-hmm. Like, what's stopping me now? Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing. There's no, there's no, you know, roadblock anymore. Mm-hmm. It's a ma- now. It's a matter of will you go or won't you? Mm-hmm. Your girlfriend's going. You've got a job. Mm-hmm. You you have everything going for you. What's stopping you? Mm-hmm. And so I was like, all right, I'm in. <laughs> I I ended up staying in Texas for a few more months. Uh, just to save up more money, mm-hmm. but uh, I made the the Shermie came out in January of twelve, and I went out in May of twelve, and wow! And now we're here. Now you're here. Yeah. 
Um, what, I mean, obviously you kind of talked a little bit about the planning, um, you know, figuring out what you were going to do, where you were going to live. Um, what, uh, how did you, what was your, uh, plan to save money? What did you do to save money to move out here? Was it just work, work, don't go out? Work, work, don't go out. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really, I'm not really a, a big spender by nature. My dad was very, uh, was a very good uh, guide in that way. He really taught us the value of a dollar and not to spend, you know, not to waste it. Mm-hmm. They, they, they did not buy us any frivolous things growing up. And if it wasn't our birthday or Christmas, forget it. We're not getting anything fun. Mm-hmm. And that was, he's, he just taught us, like, if you want something, work for it. Mow the lawn, we'll pay you. Mm-hmm. Wash the car, we'll pay you. Yeah. You know, find chores and we'll compensate you for that work, and then you go out and buy it. So, um, that was the life. That was the life we led, and uh, I didn't really have anything at that time wanting to move out to LA that I really even wanted. So I worked two jobs, um, thirty plus forty hours a week, and didn't go out. Sharon was in LA already. Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Right. And as well, just bank it all. So that's what right. I did. That's nice. Yeah. What were your first impressions of LA when you moved here? Uh, when I moved here, yeah. it was it was exciting because it was not only my first time in LA, but it was my first time living out of the house. I'd never even had an apartment in Dallas myself. It was always living at home. Mm-hmm. So it was a really big like sense of freedom coming out here. How, um, how old were you when you moved out? I was, I was uh, 24. 24. Okay. 24. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, felt really free. Had my own room. I shared a room growing up with at least one brother, so having my own room was really, really fun. Um, <laughs> even though I was sleeping on the floor, it was a lot of fun still. Um, but that uh, twinkle went away after first two or three weeks because, I mean, yes, you have a job. Yes, you have roommates, but you, you want to act, and it takes a long time before mm-hmm. people know you exist and before right. they'll even... Especially someone as green as me when it came to on-camera acting at the time which I had like one credit, maybe two at that time. And uh, it's, it's, it's uphill, you know, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not going to happen. And unless you, unless you just, you work, you, you try to get your face out there in front of as many people as you can and, and uh, start building those relationships. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what was your, what would you say is the biggest differences between Dallas and Los Angeles that you noticed? <sighs> in general? Yeah, just, just general differences. It's more crowded here. Like everything's just kind of like, you know those accordion instruments where you like bring it out and you mm-hmm. close it and it makes music? Mm-hmm. Well, Dallas is where the accordion's stretched out and you can just like swing your arms around side to side and not hit anything. And then you come to LA and the accordion's squished and you kind of feel like you can't even stretch your arms out even a little bit or you're going to hit a building or another person. <laughs> it's just everything's so much more confined. Right. Um, but th- there are still places in LA where you can get away. And there's that that sense of text, that sense of space. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 nice. Where's some of the places you get away to? Um, I like Burbank, uh, like Northern Burbank. Mm-hmm. Um, Glendale's really fun. I feel like the further northwest you go, um, more towards the mountains. Yeah. That's where you've got a bit more. Well, it becomes more suburbia. Yes. Oh, oh yes, mm-hmm. and I love. I grew up in suburbia. I mean, Dallas almost feels like, North Dallas anyway, feels like like one big giant suburbia. Yeah. So Burbank and Glendale and Pasadena, they definitely have that sense about them. What's the funny thing about Dallas is people say, where would you grow up? I grew up in Dallas. Wait, did you really grow up in Dallas or did you grow up in Plano, Mesquite, Arlington, 
Where where did you grow up? <laughs> like I people I people tell me where did you I grew up in Dallas because it's the easiest. It is know, instead of explaining I grew up in near Dallas, but it's at the outlet. It's, it's actually more like Denton County over by Frisco. <laughs> no one knows that. You you were I eighty is that's where I am. It's like we're on the west side by eighty. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's but like I think it's the same thing. You like we're here. It's the same thing. Yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Los Angeles. Well, did you really grow up in Los Angeles? Did you grow up in Glendale? Right. Yeah. 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 But it's still that same. Uh-huh. idea of like there's still a separation but it's more of those areas up there sure. where it has that suburban feel sure um so when you moved here what were some of the first steps you took towards like the acting dream i guess would for the best words like what kind of things did you do to network or you know uh, where did you look for headshots and stuff like that uh well thankfully i had gotten some headshots done back in dallas by some friends of mine mm-hmm. some some really quality friends of mine who are still doing photography to this day um they hooked me up with some headshots that my managers liked and they could run with mm-hmm. so that would buy me another year or so before i had to actually get more new la official legitimate headshots mm-hmm. um and in Dallas, there's it, it was so easy to network. There were all these mailing lists you could get a part of and all these emails, email chains you can get into and these bulletin boards at these theaters that you could find out about auditions. Mm-hmm. Those don't exist in LA. Mm-hmm. There's there's like everything's online, everything's subscription based, you know. Mm-hmm. You have to get involved with LA casting or mm-hmm. actors access to have any shot at even getting a theater audition, let alone anything on on camera. So um, that was what we learned really quickly. Me and my roommate was we got to get on Actors Access. That's it. And then you just got to self submit. Yeah. And that's what I did. That's what we both did every single day. We'd get on there same time around dinner time, end of the day when all the submissions were up, and we would just go and submit, click submit, 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 scroll. No, I'm not right for that. Submit. That was all you could do. Um, were, were there anything in particular that you were submitting yourself more for uh, more uh, for more than other things? What, did you notice you were submitting yourself for more commercials than theatrical? What, sure, what was it, it was it was more? definitely theatrical. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, at the time, I was I was an equal opportunist. I was like, if it, if it paid, I was I was on top of it. If it was an industrial, I was on top of it. Um, but I definitely was gravitating more towards the on-camera because I needed more on-camera credits. That's right. kind of the, the name of the game here is you got to get stuff on your resume. So that was what I was banking for. I was even submitting myself on on unpaid work as long as it was for theatrical on-camera right. so I could get those credits. Did you take any classes when you got in? I did not. Um, I did all my training in, in Dallas. I took improv classes there at the ACT. Um, all the classes that the college offered, um, right. that was where I did my study. Right. I needed to save the money that I made mm-hmm. on living and uh, those kinds of things, like the, the submissions to Actors Access and LA Casting, because those aren't free. I mean, you got to pay for the submissions or pay for the, the year-long annual subscription, so that's the kind of stuff that you kind of have to save yeah. the money for. Would you be able to share just how much that costs for people who don't know Actors sure, Access? Sure, sure. So Actors Access is, uh, I want to say, $2 for every time you submit on any project. So if you don't want to do the big annual bundle pack, anytime you see a commercial or an acting job that you really want to get, pays $1,000. That's awesome. It's 2 bucks, And... Uh, Let's say there were 10 projects that you were right for that all paid decent money. That's 20 bucks just for that day. Mm-hmm. 20 times 7 is, here we go, math, 140 bucks. Mm-hmm. 140 times 4 is more math, 280, four, gosh, 560, is that right? Carry the 4 Something like that. You want to say yes? Let's, let's, let's just say over 500 if bucks because I don't trust my math. If it's I'm not, not brothers. Really shown us the correct amount. <laughs> I'm a speller. My brother's where the math was is. So let's just say over $500 per month just on actors' access alone, not LA Casting or any of these other websites, just, just that. 
So clearly you're going to want to do the annual one. Which That's, is like, what, 75? It's about 68. 60, 60, high 60s. It's a weird yeah. number, though. And it's like a it's a very weird number, yeah. 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 But and then it allows you to submit as much as you want and attaching your media. Attaching the media is like additional. Yeah. So you can you can submit to whatever you want, but if you don't have pictures or demos on there, good luck because people are you can submit all day long, but no one's gonna come call you in if they can't see you, mm-hmm. your picture, or they can't see what you've done already. So mm-hmm. you kind of have to have something. Mm-hmm. So the 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 media is is ten twenty bucks a pop depending on what you want to put up there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you put up eight pictures, it's eighty bucks. If you want to put up a couple demos, that's another forty. Mm-hmm. So that that all you know that all costs. And that's just one up. website. And that's just one website. Yeah. yeah. So and then there's rent and rent out in LA isn't cheap. Even when you're sharing, a, even when you're sharing an, uh, a two bedroom apartment with three guys, you're still looking at you know five hundred bucks on the easy side. You know mm-hmm. that's if you have. Uh, and we were living in Van Nuys, which isn't prime real estate. Uh, we had a really great deal, but uh, I had my own room. It was about four hundred fifty, five hundred bucks. It was the biggest bedroom, so I, I really had a sweet deal. I'm not gonna lie. Um, we found a really great deal, but it was not a great neighborhood. It was not a great spot. So if you want to live, feel like you're living in a safe neighborhood, you're looking at spending six hundred bucks pretty quick yeah, a month. I mean, we pay. Uh, we have. I have a one bedroom uh, with my wife. We pay over a thousand, over over twelve hundred dollars mm-hmm. a month. Yeah. For it. But but we have a washer and dryer and the opportunity to have a parking space. Sure. That's a whole other story. Sure. That I'm do. Now I'm not going to sit here and say the acting classes aren't worth it. If mm-hmm. you if you you know because that is not just a way to get training, but it's also a network. That's what my roommate did. My roommate was taking acting classes and getting connected and getting auditions that way, and that's mm-hmm. great. But you know, just so you know, my roommate was out here two months and then he went home. Mm-hmm. Not because he couldn't afford it. He had a it was a girlfriend back home that he went mm-hmm. back to see. So there was that playing into it as well. Um, luckily your girl was here luckily my girl was here that's right (laughs) Um, but I'm just saying for me for me I didn't want to spend my funds my savings on the classes because I had the training back in Texas I wanted to spend it on things like headshots or things like the actor's access yeah Yeah, we've had discussions on the show about the cost of classes and and stuff like that and how it's it's where it's, it's such a conundrum of they people look at it, but at the same time, it costs five hundred dollars for six classes. It, the classes are no joke here. Yeah. They 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 charge you a lot. Mm-hmm. Now you recently did you you started recently with an improv? I did. I I'm in the Groundlings program right now How's at that a basic going? level. It's going really really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't done improv in seven years. Seven, uh, I did four levels of improv at the Alternative Comedy Theater in Dallas, but that was seven years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, I've been meaning to do. Uh, an LA improv school for a long time, and uh, finally decided to jump into it, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Lot of fun. What What have you What do you feel you've taken so far? Like that you've kind of how have you grown so far? The importance of committing to a character, mm-hmm. um, and this is definitely applicable to any level of acting, but with improv specifically, to to not only make a strong choice um, with your emotion and your intention, and and with your relationship with your character, but a fun character quirk or a choice, like whether your character twitches with his with his shoulder, or if he has a Boston accent, or he's got a you know a limp when he walks, like to, to come up with that that character just to give him even more depth and make him more interesting. It's really really fun. Nice. Yeah. Um, now one thing, do you have any family in LA other than obviously your wife? Um, it's funny. Uh, my dad has a sister who lives in California. Mm-hmm. Um, we. My, she came to visit us in Texas one time, a long, long time ago. My dad doesn't really talk about her very much. And I don't even know if she's still here. I don't know where in California she is. Um, 
but uh, outside of that enigma, I have I have no family in California right. at all. I bring I bring that up because we one thing we have talked about is how Los Angeles can easily become a very isolating city. Yes, um, you can easily feel alone and and feel like you're you are not doing what you should be doing because other people are doing things that you wish you were doing and so forth and so on. Um, what do you do? And I mean, I know obviously you have your wife, which is there for support. Um, what do you guys do? How do you guys get to those times where it kind of gets a little like, should we maybe go home? Should we, I mean, should we stay here? Is this working out? Like, what do you, what do you, you guys gotta do? have a support system. Mm-hmm. It's so easy, especially that first six months. That first six months is brutal if you don't have anybody here. Um, because you you move to LA and you have these dreams of making it, or you have these dreams of at least feeling like you're making it, making strides. And there's so much wading in the pool. There's so much just treading water that it's easy to get discouraged right away, right away. Um, and it's easy to blow your funds really quickly because you go out and you go to the clubs, or you go to the bars because you're networking and buy a twenty dollar drink. Yeah, you're doing all of that because you feel like that's what the LA lifestyle is, and that's what you need to buy into to make it. And then people make it six months and they gotta go home because they have no more money left. Yeah. And you just don't have to do that. There are other ways to find that that social aspect, that support group that you need. For me, um, and I credit this to my roommate uh, Barrett Lewis. If you're listening, shout out to Barrett Lewis. Um, he uh, he got connected with a, an artist's Christian group um, that is here in Los Angeles. Uh, called They're now called Artists LA. Um, and uh, he invited me to go with them uh, or to, come, to go visit them and hang out. And uh, it, was, it was really refreshing to find such a large community of like-minded people who had similar interests and desires as me. And it was, it was like an instant support group, snap of the fingers, mm-hmm. right away. Um, really clicked with them, really bonded with them. And uh, we met once a week, and that was it. Was it was like my church? I would go there and, and get refreshed, um, not just spiritually, but socially and 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 encouraging mm-hmm. wise as well. I agree. Um, so, what was your what were some of your first jobs that you booked in LA? Uh, Glee was actually the very first acting oh. job I booked um, in LA, and uh, was that through management? Or it was through my managers, and uh, it was actually in the first three months of me living here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of my managers called me Johnny Glee for like the next six months just because of that. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you loved it. Uh, it was it was fun at first, <laughs> and then after a while, it kind of got old. And even he realized, and he goes, "You need to book something else. We can give you a new nickname." And I'm like, "I know, right?" <laughs> Um, so, so Glee was the first thing I booked here in LA um, through managers. I booked another. Uh, I want to. Well, I don't know how you classify it. I don't even know where it is now. But it was this show. It was like uh, one of those supernatural shows um, where they paint it to be like it's. It was like a. It's like a documentary where it's real to life or whatever. But it's it's definitely fictional. Um, I don't remember what it was called. If, if it pops up to me later, yeah. I'll, I'll mention it. But Absolutely. I played, uh, it was a silent role for me. I played a janitor who goes into, uh, I work in an old folks home and I go in and I find uh, this this amazing stuff in the basement, all these like genius contraptions and and a pyramid stack of cards and, and it's these elderly people who uh, used to work 
uh, and help build the atomic bomb or something like these genius old people, right? Um, and so my whole part was was silent and and just silent acting. That was really fun. I have no idea what it's called. I don't know where you can find it. Uh, it was very Twilight Zoney though. Um, that was the and I booked that self self subscription. That was the mm-hmm. actors access thing. Um, but it, it was slim pickings for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it takes it takes some time to really start. I think getting that train going once you mm-hmm. move here. Uh, so let's kind of break it up between the stuff you do, like you said, you act, direct, and write, and things like that. So kind of getting a little more specific with stuff. Um, what is acting to you? Gosh. Okay. So there's there are a lot of people who buy into the the Meisners and the all these different acting techniques, mm-hmm. and I never really bought myself into any of that I always just kind of did it like I know that fe- that sounds lazy mm-hmm. but I it's just one of those things where I where I look at a character and I read the dialogue and it just makes sense mm-hmm. um, maybe a lot of the nuances I don't get right away that's what a director's there to help you find but um, the, the the basic elements and the essence of the character I was able to grab onto I just kind of always had a knack for it um, so, but I, I just feel like Acting is being able to take a part of yourself and mesh it with something that's not you. Mm-hmm. So if you're playing a, a villain who's like a murderer and a rapist, it's like how do you how do you put some of yourself into that, mm-hmm. but also be able to embody that without it becoming who you really are. That mm-hmm. it's, it's finding that balance. Right. Um, that's what I think acting is, is blending the fictional character with who you are. Yeah, finding a little bit of it in you, but also making sure you keep it separate yes. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, who are some mentors or actors that you kind of were inspired you or that you looked up to? Uh, Jim Carrey is the, always the first one that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. I've gotten, I've, I, there have been many people, both personal and reviewers have mentioned this in certain reviews of my theater performances, mm-hmm. have said it's very Jim Carrey-esque. And anytime somebody says that, they're like, do you get that a lot? And I'm like, I do, but I never get tired of hearing it because I love Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey is such a balls-to-the-wall, um, fearless, dedicated, committed, comedic performer. Um, he just... I just... When he bursts onto the scene in the mask, that's just how I felt like I was as a kid. Like, dad is home, you know, or whatever it is. Like, he just... Like, all those quotes... Um, somebody stop me, you know, it's like, I just, I, 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 I wanted to be that. I wanted to be so fearless and so, and so wacky. He's just, he was, he was like a walking cartoon character. Um, but he was so genius in, 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 in his physical comedy, um, that I really, really, uh, latched onto. And, uh, for more of a traditional Mm-hmm. Impressive, like <laughs> more, you know, acting, an acting, actor, an actor yeah. as it were. No offense, Jim Carrey, you're amazing. But if we're talking about actors, Benedict Cumberbatch, I was mm-hmm. thinking about this the last couple of days because I really gave some thought to this question. And every time, every time I watch Benedict Cumberbatch perform, mm-hmm. it is, it is amazing. I don't know if anyone has seen the Imitation Game. Mm-hmm. He yeah. is brilliant in that movie, and. The, another, uh, the the second Star Trek Into Darkness where he played the Wrath of Khan spoiler alert um, he's, he's, he's caught in their brig and he's lamenting 
what it was like to 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 lose his crew or to try to find you know get that crew back and he's just he's monologuing and then a tear goes down but he doesn't give a rip he's just going for it he's just in it I'm just, and I was melting in the fear I'm like oh it's so beautiful it's so beautiful I'm not worthy to watch what I'm seeing right now and that's what I feel like a lot when I'm watching him perform it's like I'm not worthy I don't know what you're doing to me right now so, so in, a, in, a, in a theater full of people I'm going to say more probably a lot of testosterone uh, driven <laughs> with some females in there watching a space uh, uh, action film in the in the silence you hear the weeping sounds of John Grace. Yes, yes. <laughs> Seriously. I I weep at theaters. Hey, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say I'm not ashamed. I've done it. I I, the, I I teared up and a few tears fell at the end of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, I'm not gonna lie. <sighs> Boy, that movie. That was a good one. That was a good one. <laughs> I feel you. Um, I, I did the same. What's what's been your favorite role that you've played? Who and why? Favorite role. Um, that can be theatrical, on screen, in your bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd have to say uh, I was in a play in Plano, Texas. Rover Drama Works was the theater company. And uh, we did Murder at the Orient Bur- Burlesque. It was an original play. It was the first time it was ever produced. And it was a murder mystery. Um but it was a backwards murder mystery to where everybody, uh, hold on. It's been so long. <laughs> oh, that's what it was. She was killed multiple times by many different people. So it was almost uh, a murder, murder mystery of who didn't kill this person. <laughs> um, or more accurately, who killed her with what mm-hmm. and why. Um, I was playing a super bad vaudeville comedian. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those old school, you know, bringing the cane out and they drag mm-hmm. them out and they do all the, you know, the, the shticks, the, right. the really bad punny jokes. Mm-hmm. That was my deal. And uh, I, I, I wore like the, the peppermint, you know, outfit mm-hmm. and peppermint candy cane outfit and just had the worst jokes. And what was so funny about this character was he was bad at those jokes. Like he couldn't get the timing right. Or he would screw up the punchline, or it was just a really, really funny, wacky role. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, uh, what, what did you take away from that? What did you do? Was there anything that you learned from doing that role or doing that show that kind of kept going with you? That that was one of the first uh, on stage roles where I really had to get the physical comedy down, mm-hmm. um, and that and, and that goes a step beyond you know getting in your body and embodying a character. There's a whole other element to the physical comedy aspect that I hadn't been able to really put on in, or had to put on in any role until that time so that was really exhilarating awesome. doing the slapstick alright so taking it to the other side what's a role you've done that you feel you could have done better that role actually <laughs> that's a role that I go back to and go oh, I could have done so much more with that with those vaudevillian bits because mm-hmm. um, there's a difference between playing bad mm-hmm. but also playing so bad that it's good mm-hmm. like like where you see past the bad, but there's like this, uh, th- this, this intention behind the bad. He's doing it on purpose in specific moments, and he's making it look flawless. It's so bad, but there's reason behind it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't think I ever got to that place where people could look beyond the bad and go, "Oh wow, 
that was that was that was so good. He was so bad. It was so good. I don't know if I reached that. Gotcha. And I'm bummed. Yeah. I'm bummed. Um, so moving on to directing, uh, how as a director do you prepare? What is your process to prepare to go on set or to go into the theater and tell these actors whether it's your what you've written or not, um, what to do? What is your focus and preparation for that? Um, I. 90% of all the stuff I've directed has been my own work because mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm a writer, obviously, so a lot of what I write I end up directing and producing, so it all just kind of flows together. I, I just live in it. Um, I, but there have been a couple of times where I've directed somebody else's work, and in those situations when I can't rely on the fact that I've lived with this piece for months writing it mm-hmm. and I just know what I want to do, mm-hmm. getting into another script of somebody else's, I have to know the characters. That's the most important thing for me. If I don't know who these people are and what they want, I can't direct anything Um, because the story happens. You know, I don't have to like get the characters to the story because that's already built in. I don't have to accentuate all these big gigantic plot points because that happens in the play. Like the 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 writing will speak for those moments, Mm -hmm. but I have to bring out the essence of the characters in these people Mm -hmm. um, because um, there are actors that don't aren't able to bring out the full quality of the character all by themselves. You kind of have to show them, hey, this part of the character needs to show up here because of X, Y, Z. Or, you know, don't lose this physical characteristic of the character in this moment because it plays over here. There's just so much of the character that that is important that can go under an actor's radar. And then for those actors that are able to get that, that's when you really get to play and you really get to up the ante and you're like, do that more, give me more of this, bring this down. It's way more impactful if it's subtle, you know, if you drop it down, like that's when you really get to play with the art of the character. Right. Um, but that that's, I'm so character driven, not just in my, in my directing, but in my writing as well. It's all about the characters. What's your process when working with actors? What are you, are you a, kind of walk it through the scene with them or let them play with the scene? Like, what is your, as, especially as an actor yeah. yourself, what, I mean, how do you, how, what's your approach with the actor? Definitely the former. Definitely have to walk it with them because um, I, a lot of my writing and my directing comes from my acting because my acting came first. The directing and writing came so much later. Right. I lean back to my acting because that's, that's my roots. Mm-hmm. So if I can't envision as the actor what to do, how can I direct this actor what to do? Right. So I have to go in there and be the actor for a second, see myself on the stage and go, this stage picture doesn't make sense from the actor's point of view. We need to get you over here. And then that fixes the stage picture. Right. Um, so uh, I, I, I talk a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, my, uh, my very, my, one of my acting mentors from college uh, and my first acting teacher ever, Gail Cronauer, uh, whenever she did directing notes, I'm talking pages and pages and like the single lines of the little notebook paper. Like she was just going and going. That's the way I do my notes as well. I'm the same. And so uh, very, very detailed, very, very specific. Um, But I like to think I have a lot of fun when I direct too. Um, I I try to keep things light. Um, I try to encourage. Um, I'm also a teacher. So I know that you can't just critique and critique and critique and expect people to be happy. You have to be able to praise what they're doing and, and mean it. And, and anytime I praise anybody, I, I, I mean it 100%. They need that acknowledgement mm-hmm. and uh, they deserve it. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you feel you've learned? Or what's the most important thing you've learned from directing? Um, it's so hard not to give line readings. Mm. It's really hard. 
especially when you're also the writer. Because when you're the writer, you wrote certain lines with certain inflections or certain emotions. And if they don't get it, even if you give them a direction to try to push them in that direction, they still don't get it. You kind of want to just say, it sounds like this. And you just want to say it. Um, so one of the things that I learned in directing class was don't do don't give line readings and I'm not going to say I don't because I know I do um, but one of the things I'm still trying to learn is to let the actors discover it on themselves and know that even if they don't say it the way you had it in your head their way is just as good if not better mm-hmm. and so t- to be able to step back from your own ego and recognize what they bring to the table and know that they're capable of creating this character too and come up with an idea that's different from mine and it's prob- it could very well be better mm-hmm. and that's great. Gotcha. Um, so when you I kind of take from that when you're writing, um, how has being an actor and a director helped you in your writing? Um, the, the, where the directing comes into the writing is keeping me away from writing scenes that take place in like a moving car mm-hmm. or like a sinking ship. Or, 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 you know, a space fight. It's like not saying that those things can't be done on stage, but I'm kind of a practical thinker, and if it can't really be fleshed out on the stage, if we're, you know, if you've got a half a million dollar budget or something like Broadway, like you can, you can create a spaceship battle. Like, that's great. And not saying you can't do that with a budget of $500, mm-hmm. but if you want the, the, the play to be as quality as possible, maybe write something a bit more... To your budget, mm-hmm. like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a cafe mm-hmm. setting, perhaps. And then a lot of pew, 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 suspicious <laughs> fly around. around little fish net. Fish sure, <laughs> sure. Not saying you can't get creative, but that's where the directing side comes in. That's the practical side going, how would you, how would you actually do this, right. sir? How would you make this come out on stage? Ah, you're right, you're right, director, okay. <laughs> um, but the acting definitely lends me to creating the characters because I like, to write characters that if I was an actor and I would see it on a call notice, an audition board, I want to play that part. That part sounds awesome. Oh my gosh, I get to play a a suicidal giraffe? I want to play that. That sounds awesome. Or, oh my gosh, uh, one of the seven deadly sins is an annoying bratty sister who won't shut up? I want to play that part. Like, Mm -hmm. just creating these colorful characters that would just grab an actor's attention, give them some meat, to really just be like, I have to play that part. That's what I want to create. And I want to see you play that annoying bratty sister at some point. <laughs> saying, um, what is your process as a writer? Uh, do you come up with the idea and come up with like the beginning and the end and then fill in the middle? Do you come up with just a concept and let the story kind of fill itself? Like, What's your process? It, it almost changes depending on the piece. Generally speaking, it usually starts with a concept. Like, what... What type of show do I want? Mm-hmm. So, so one of the shows that I alluded to just now uh, was called Seven's a Crowd, and it was it started about I wanted to write the Seven Deadly Sins as if they were a dysfunctional, twisted Brady Bunch family. Mm-hmm. Like that's that was the concept, mm-hmm. and so the story came around me trying to work that concept. Um, the dream play that I mentioned before, my very first play, started with just the characters. I wanted to create. Uh, a character who was a rapper. I wanted to create uh, a beatnik, depressed poet. I wanted to create um, an optimistic waitress who wants to turn, you know, turn this cafe into something great. Mm-hmm. Like I came up with those characters, and then the story kind of formed through them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, either through characters or through a concept. Okay. Um, so let's talk about your most recent work, Confessionals. Yeah. Um, where did that idea come from? 
I cannot take credit for the idea. That idea belongs to my wife, Jeremy. She and another voice actor friend of hers, Bryce Pappenbrook, who is also in the show. We were coming back from a convention a couple years ago. I want to say it was in Georgia, Atlanta. And Jeremy uh, had been having these interactions lately with fans convinced that the two of them were brother-sister or even twins. And Jeremy came across this specific fan who was so convinced and Jeremy kept saying it's actually not true that she got upset, emotionally, almost aggressively upset oh, wow. that she would dare say those things about her brother. Like, why would you want to disown him? He's amazing. <laughs> like, he would, she was so convinced that finally she said, you're right, I don't know what I was thinking. And she just had to say that they were related. And so later on in, that, in the next panel, she goes over to Bryce and says, okay, if anybody asks, we're related. Okay, thanks. So they had to play that anytime they were in public that convention. So then the car ride home to the airport, uh, they were just spitballing. What, what if we were twins? What if we came up with a show where we were actually related and we were twins? And, oh, yeah, you could be this and you could be this. And so they started spitballing ideas and sitting there next to them as a writer. I'm just going, oh, that's good. Oh, that's really good. That's fun. Oh, and you could have this other voice actor play this part. Yeah, that'd be really fun. So the idea of voice actors being on camera mm -hmm. was so interesting because it's to me hadn't been done. Mm -hmm. um, obviously shows about voice acting or about conventions mm -hmm. have been done, but actually casting the voice actors to play those parts was fresh. Mm -hmm. So that's what I wanted to do. I took their idea. Mm -hmm. I actually gave them time if they wanted to write it. I don't want to steal it from them. Mm -hmm. I gave them time and they didn't run with it. So a year went by and I went, I'm going to do it. I'm, I just have to do it. It's such a good idea. So I asked other voice actors that we'd known that I respect and said, hey, I really like you. I, I think you're hilarious. Would you do this series? Would you, I'm thinking about creating this. And they were all like, yeah, that sounds great. So I came up with different versions of themselves. It's very, um, it's an office style comedy, mockumentary style mm -hmm. comedy, where I took the voice actors and just kind of turned their, their real life fan persona mm -hmm. around. So Jeremy is known, not just with fans, but from the voice actors as well, her peers, as the nicest person ever. Mm -hmm. She is the nicest celebrity to the fans. She's the nicest voice actor of everybody, right? So obviously she's going to be a raving yeah, jerk in my show. Like, like she has to. Because yeah. the, the fan can get such a kick out of seeing Jeremy be this person that they never get to see. Mm -hmm. um, and being able to do that with all these different voice actors was really, really, really fun. Nice. So uh, you obviously it seems like you kind of did a little most of the casting through friends and asking people that you knew. Mm -hmm. um, did you do any kind of casting call for other characters? We did. We uh, every, every, every major role... Um, I want to say every, pretty much every role was an offer first, and there was a role in particular, the, the crazy fan role, mm -hmm. that uh, our first offer could not do, and then our second offer could also not do, and our third offer could also not do, so we ran out of offers, and we were like, well, I guess we have to audition now, mm -hmm. and he was actually the fifth lead in our series. He had three, three and a half episodes of the five, and uh, we got... Gosh, 900 submissions, eight to 900 submissions. And uh, I asked about 50 to 70 of them to send in a tape. And then I called back about six and uh, ended up casting the guy. And the, the guy we cast, Carson Nicely, is a tremendous actor. And uh, he was not who I originally physically thought was going to be who we would have cast. He's a very nice-looking young man. And this great, most crazy fans are not quite so handsome as he. But he just... He really embodied that crazy. He had that craziness about him. 
mm-hmm. that was just so gripping to watch. Nice. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so you did a Kickstarter campaign mm-hmm. uh, to kind of get this produced and stuff like that. What was your, uh, we, we did a Kickstarter for our show. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was curious to kind of f- hear from you what your, uh, how you planned the Kickstarter, put it together before you obviously executed it and then kind of go into execution and then how you marketed it. Sure. So uh, I had done a couple Indiegogos before this. Mm-hmm. Um, this was actually my first time using Kickstarter specifically. Mm-hmm. I'd done Indiegogo for the, the two plays that I produced in Los Angeles just to kind of supplement everything because mm-hmm. I had some money that I could be able to do some stuff but not do the whole kit and caboodle and every, every little bit helps. So Indiegogo allows you to st- to save whatever it was you raised, whether or not you met your goal. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with Kickstarter, obviously, you, it's an all-or-nothing deal. And for confessionals to be able to do it the way we wanted to do it, it needed to be all-or-nothing. This is not some play that you can get by using, you know, secondhand stuff from a, a goodwill. Like it's got to be, it's got to be right. It's got to be good. Um, you you can't whiff on the sound quality or the camera quality or any of that stuff. It's got to be on everything. So we set our goal. Um, Five episodes, uh, and we thought, you know, $15,000 was an attainable goal while also enough money to feel like we were going to be able to put our best foot forward in the first season. Mm -hmm. Um, We might have to uh, compromise on a location here or there, Mm -hmm. but as far as the quality of the work, it was going to be intact. And uh, so we, uh, thankfully, because... We, we are using uh, people who are kind of already established in their own industry. They already have a following, mm-hmm. and uh, we really kind of relied on that. We were catering the Kickstarter to that. Our video was giving them a glimpse of the characters that we were creating. Mm-hmm. Um, they were talking to their fans as their character. I kind of wrote up a script for them mm-hmm. um, to give them a, a, a morsel, a taste of what it, the series would be like, and people really gravitated towards that. They, they, I was hoping they would um, because... I was using this as a proof of concept. I mean, I can say, oh, people, fans will love this. Mm-hmm. They might not give a crap. They might not care. Mm-hmm. And so if we raise this money, that proves that they care because they're right. putting their money in. So, and that's what they did. Nice. Yeah. Um, what was So when you executed it, how did you market it? What was y'all's plan for getting it out there? Especially with, like, bet the rewards. What was y'all's plans with that? Yeah. So um, as far as getting it out there, um, it... Twitter, Twitter and social media, that's the that's the place where the fans and the voice actors connect mm-hmm. and, and the fans follow them religiously and and just making sure that the, the voice actors involved, even the ones who worked in the Kickstarter video, everyone attached to the project, share it. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, we don't raise the money. If we don't raise the money, this doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So it has to happen from word of mouth. Um, and so, so that part I wasn't too concerned with. The perks is something that I'm kind of anal about actually um, and this was something that I really wanted to do with this and that I could do with this project that I couldn't with the others as much and that's the fact that people like to get crap mm-hmm. they like to get stuff I mean there are a lot of Kickstarter videos where all they offer is you know social shout outs or name in the credits or you know red carpet parties or whatever and that's fine I'm not I'm not dissing that because there's a place for that mm-hmm. but if that's all you're offering your your people people donating are be very very limited to mm-hmm. just the people who support you rather than people that you're trying to reach to try to get involved in your series mm-hmm. and to get those people who have no emotional attachment to you mm-hmm. they need to get swag they need to get stuff and so being able to have these voice actors and these characters that I created 
We can give them headshots of their characters signed. Mm -hmm. We can give them posters. We can give them, you know, I was able to, you know, work it in the script to where you can send in a video and we can use your video in the series. You can be in the series. Things outside the box perks like that um, are great. And then because we have these headshots and these prints, bundle them up instead of just getting one you can get all three and uh you know for a for a higher cost and uh you know you can get uh one-on-one time with your favorite voice actor via skype for this much and that's worth a lot so so getting those outside the box ideas uh, are really really important Mm -hmm. absolutely um what was uh, have y'all uh been able to uh, send all your rewards out yet? Are you still working on that? No, we got we got all that done. I, wow. I really don't like letting that kind of stuff sit. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me uncomfortable. Um, it actually took a little bit longer than I wanted. Uh, we wrapped it, we wrapped the Kickstarter in late September. Mm-hmm. And I want to say it took me almost to the end of the year because we had 160-something backers. We had quite a few. Um, and of those, of those 160, um, probably a hundred low hundreds actually needed stuff sent to them. Boy, that was a that's that. I mean, I'm. It was a lot, a lot of work, a lot of work getting the addresses and filling out the envelopes and stuffing the envelopes and mailing the envelopes. It's it's a lot of work. I'm not I'm not gonna lie. Like, you 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 get you set the swag perks. Mm-hmm. You get the you get the money, mm-hmm. but then you gotta deliver that, mm-hmm. and and that's a lot of work. I'm, so so know that going in. Yeah. But that's that's the price you gotta pay. If you wanna get your project done, mm-hmm. you do the swag, you do the swag to get the swag, you gotta send the swag. So mm-hmm. but yeah, it took me a good couple months to get all that done. So how long did the filming take? What was the, the filming like? I know you were directing it. Um, you also are in it as mm-hmm. Jimmy. Yeah. Um, what you know, just kinda of talk about the filming a little bit real Yes. Uh, so I did not want to direct this. Mm-hmm. I didn't uh, it would have been, this was my first on camera directing. Um, and I would have preferred, especially since I was already acting in it, um, to have somebody else helmet. Um, so I didn't have not only that added responsibility, but that, um, I don't like the dynamic of, of directing actors who I'm also acting with because I just feel like there's no one to keep me accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I learned in my directing class in college as well. Don't direct and act at the same time. And I tried to live by that. So we approached somebody else to do the directing and he couldn't commit to the time. And by the time he made that decision, we were already kind of under the gun. And I'm like, I guess I have to do it. It's just the way it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And then in scenes where I'm acting, maybe Sheremy can direct me and she can be my accountability partner in that mm-hmm. sense. So that's what we ended up doing. So filming took seven days and we went to three different cities to get all this done because we ended up filming on location. Uh, two, three of the episodes take place either in a hotel of the convention or the convention itself. So we actually got connected with conventions thanks to all our actors and their connections. We uh, went to Sacramento to Sac Anime the first of the year and got to film everything convention-wise there. Um, so we got did three days, no, four days in Sacramento, four days in Sacramento, two days in Los Angeles, and one day in Dallas. Because we had voice actors who are based in Dallas that weren't that we needed to get some stuff outside of the convention with just them. So mm-hmm. thankfully we had a nice convenient camp of LA actors and Dallas actors who happen to have scenes together but not with each other outside of the convention. Right. So it all kind of worked out scheduling wise. 
did it all run smoothly? All the actors work really well? Oh, the actors really saved us. Um, the locations were a pain in the butt, especially the ones at the convention, because that we had such strict time restraints with a lot of that, those locations and spots, that if the actors didn't know their stuff or didn't get along, we would never have made it. Mm-hmm. Never. Um, but they were so on the ball. They knew their lines. They knew everything that they needed to do. Right. One of the, There was a scene in particular. We, it was a two-and-a-half-page scene. It was probably the longest standalone scene of the whole series. And we had to get it done in about 45 minutes. Oh, wow. um, because the space we were using, we were using a backstage storage area that at the convention, they were needing to take a thousand chairs from this ballroom, move them all in that space to clear it out for a dance going on that night. And we didn't know about it. So we had just gotten set up to shoot, and they were like, oh, we're actually going to need to be in here and move like a whole crap bunch of chairs. And I'm like, how much time do we, do we have? Can we stay in like 45 minutes maybe? And I'm like, we'll take it. And we just, boy, we gunned through it. Our crew was fantastic. Our, we had a crew of about five, mm-hmm. five people, very skeleton, but they worked like they were 15. It was insane. And so I credit the crew and the cast if not for their dedication, for their for them being talented as hell. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> talented as hell and uh, just on the ball. We would never have made it. So what was your strategy for marketing the show once it was starting to be released and, and getting people to know about before you even released it? <sighs> this is my Achilles heel, mm-hmm. if you haven't already figured it out, is the marketing, which is very unfortunate because marketing is arguably the most important thing of any project because you put all your sweat and money and toil into a project but if no one sees it what was the point of it all and that's what marketing is for and that's something that I have very limited almost non-existent experience I just don't know how to market effectively especially without marketing funds set aside for that purpose when you when you have your money set aside and you have $15,000 to make a seven a five episode web series in seven days there's not a lot you can dedicate to marketing when you have to think of paying the cast and the crew and the post-production. Post-production is expensive, and there's just you can't set aside marketing. Marketing is always the thing that ends up getting shafted when it comes to getting the thing made. And so I always have to rely on word of mouth and social media. That's the only thing I can I can effectively do. Because any other type of, of marketing like you know, on Facebook ads or, or whatever, those things cost money and I just don't have it. That's right. just the, the sad truth. Right. Um, so, um, but again, thankfully we have this fan base and they help get the word out because they're into it and mm-hmm. they say, hey, check these guys out. And that, to me, that's as good of advertising right. as you can get, getting all these people working for you getting the word out. Well, I know Mike and I both seen the first two episodes that are up and they've been they're great. Oh, like, thank you. Very funny. <laughs> a very funny show done in mockumentary style yes. um, about these several different voiceover actors uh, the show but it, yeah it's, it's really good. Thank you. Thank De- you thank definitely you. check it out. Uh, Confessionals uh, C-O, capital C-O-N that's right S the regular uh, it's on YouTube is it anywhere else other than YouTube? It's yeah. on YouTube and we're actually transitioning to uh, this new site called Anime Unlocked it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a new anime community it's a closed group that anyone can join they just gotta click the link to get accepted and there's links in the video descriptions on YouTube so if anyone's like I don't know where the link is Episode two, click the little arrow at the description. It's at the bottom. The link's at the bottom. Gotcha. Um, Because all the episodes are going to go there um, eventually. All right. So kind of wrap up this first part uh, uh, of of uh, your section on the the show. Um, What's some advice you'd give some people maybe that are thinking about moving to L.A. or just moved to L.A. for surviving living in L.A.? Find something else that you love to do. (laughs) You, 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 You have to 
feed yourself spiritually and creatively something outside of just acting. Because when you first get out here, it's going to take a while. Um, maybe one in a million or one in a hundred thousand gets that big break right away. I'm not saying those don't happen, but it's certainly not the norm. It's far from the norm. So you've got to find something to keep yourself sane creatively, socially, um, even with your day job. There are a lot of people that are just like, I'm just going to wait tables. And there's a lot of people that give up because they hate it. They hate waiting tables. But there's more to day jobs than just waiting tables. And there's a lot of... It's harder to get a, wait, a, uh, a waiter job here in L.A. than anywhere yes, else. Yes, that's also very true. So, so the, the competition's really high for that. I myself work with kids. Um, there's a lot of jobs available here in L.A. for people who want to work with kids. Camps in the summer, um, rec facilities. Um, there's just... Uh, I worked with a homeschool sports program for a handful of months. They just go to parks and they teach them soccer or whatever. Um, there's just if, if, if you think outside the box, you can find something else that you enjoy doing that can help sustain you until you get that chance. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'd say. Um, any advice for uh, actors, creators, directors, writers out there that you want to give? That uh, can be a generic across the board or if there's one for each one that you want to give. Do your own thing. Create your own stuff and make it happen. Even if you have a hundred dollars that you can put towards it, find something that you can make that's good for a hundred dollars. Don't take your full-length feature out and try to do that for a hundred bucks. Write a short, write a two-minute short, find an interesting location. Don't do a living room. There are so many living room, you know, park type of uh, uh, web series out there. Find something. Think outside the box, like a like a moving car, or uh, you know, like a like a like a like a like a. I'm trying to think of another one, like a by by water, by river, by trees. Find something interesting, like an interesting surrounding landscape that's different that you don't see a whole lot of. That also happens to be free that you can get away with just shooting, you know, guerrilla style. Um, write something short that you can afford to do and make it good and put it out there. Um, and that's going to help get you recognized. Even if it's not by the next Steven Spielberg, maybe it's by the next guy who's starting his own production company and you guys can team up. You can write and he can produce. There's so much that can happen just from that. So create your own stuff and make it happen. It's fantastic, man. Um, what do you have anything coming up? I know you have professionals. Uh, how? What's the upcoming episodes for that? Do you know the release dates for those? So um, you might want to edit this out, mm-hmm. but because uh, this is the, this isn't going to go up until mm-hmm. July, all the episodes will be out already. So they'll all be out. Great. They'll all be out. <laughs> they'll all be out. They're already um, out. They're already out. Do you have anything coming up in July? Um, I actually don't have anything on the books coming up right now, um, creatively speaking. Confessionals has kind of taken over my life, Mm -hmm. and uh, I am figuring out the next chapter. Um, Season two? Season two, people are already talking about how they want it. I already have it in my head. I haven't written anything down because I know that if I do and we don't get to do it, I'm going to be so depressed. Uh, so, if you need a brawny, bearded villain, just let me know. I I will absolutely <laughs> do so. I will do so. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for coming and doing this. It's yes, thank you for having me. fantastic chatting with you. Yeah. Um, I, I would love for you to stay and talk a little more roundtable with Michael and I. Would love to do that. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me on Facebook. I, I live on Facebook. Uh, John Christie. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, Christ IE that's, and no H and John there you go um, that always gets people and then Twitter I'm becoming more and more active thanks to confessionals on Twitter uh, 
My my personal tag is at John Christie six one three. There's a lot of John Christies He's the out 613th there. Six hundred thirteenth one. That's that's right. And uh, you can check out our confessional Twitter page at c o n underscore fessionals. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank it was you. Such a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, I think that's where we're gonna end it. All right. Back to you, Michael and Daniel, in the studio. I told you that was a fantastic episode. We talked about so many things. One of the things I've been wanting to talk about with someone for a while is that the relationship, uh, a personal, more intimate relationship with somebody that's in the business and kind of comparing it with my relationship with someone that's not in the business. And and that was really exciting to talk to John about and hear how him and his wife work together, not just as creatives, but also on set together and how, you know, it works in the household. So it never becomes overbearing and takes over, you know, their personal relationship, which is important. You have to make sure that you keep that part uh, uh, separate in a lot of ways. Uh, but anyways, um, another thing I really enjoyed, we talked a little bit about the crowdfunding, and we talked a little bit more about that in Act 2, but one of the things doing the Kickstarter for this show we really notice is how much time it takes and how much you're going to post on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Snapchat if you got it. Um, you know, how much it takes because you got to get the word out there. You want to also let people, it's not just about getting money, but it's about letting people know this is coming. It's about, it's marketing for what's coming. So you want to get people excited, even if they can't give anything, maybe they'll go, oh, that's an interesting idea. I'm going to keep my eye out for that. Or they'll follow your, your Kickstarter, even though they can't give any money because they want to see if it gets funded, what's happening with it and when it comes out because they are interested in it. Um, so definitely always make sure you, you give yourself enough time and make sure you have the energy to keep it going and have somebody with you. You need a partner. You need two partners. If you can have someone that whose sole job is the Kickstarter, that's even better because it, it really it does take a lot of your time. But in the end, hopefully it, it, it ends up being worth it. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about that, that John brought up is about surviving L.A. and watching how you spend your money and the honest ex- expectations you should have when you get here. Um, you know, he, he, he said it best, I think, that you know, people come thinking they're going to be famous in six months and they're going to be inside those gates, the pearly walls, making the money, making the movies, getting all the gigs and networking, networking. That's not how it works. It takes time. It takes energy. And it, it, it's, a, it's a struggle. It's a legit hustle. It's a legit struggle. So come here with you know, honest expectations of what it's going to be like. There's going to be disappointments. There's going to be times where you feel like you failed. But always look past it. It's, it's a journey. It's not get here and reach the destination. It's all a journey. There's, it's never ending. Um, even people who you think probably have made it are probably still struggling in certain areas and still hustling and still moving and still pushing. So you know, don't let the, the facade fool you. Behind the scenes, they're still calling their agents. They're still worrying about auditions. They're still worrying about if they, got, if they booked the gig. So it's not, it's not just you. It's never just you. It's 10,000 other people here that are trying to make their dreams come true. And, and, and again, with the money, it's true. Like Things are expensive here. So you need to save, save, save. Have a good nest when you get here. If, you can, if you're like John and you can have a job ready for you when you get here, that's great. That's fantastic. Buffo on you. But if you can't, save your money so you have that, that nest to, to keep on while you look for jobs. Even if you're like, oh, I'm just going to be a waiter. That should be easy to get. In Los Angeles, it is not. Everybody wants to be a waiter because the schedules allow for auditions and all that stuff. So I've gone to a casting call for a restaurant. It was a casting call. 
And there were literally 60 people there for server gigs, bartender gigs, and dishwasher gigs. So just know it's not as easy as somewhere outside of California or L.A. would be. But other than that, I felt like that was really great. Part two, we have some really great stuff coming in part two. Uh, We talk more about crowdfunding, um, what to expect, the best ways to – to let people know about you, what you're trying to do, um, about being clear with what your mission is and what your goals are and what you're going to use the money for. And if you get past that goal, what you're going to use extra money for so you can keep getting more money to help you make what you're doing better. Uh, we also talk a little more in depth about relationships, uh, not just intimate, but friendships and networking and how you know you want to make sure that you you can keep them divided from professional and and and, and personal even friendships you know i mean me and michael do this together we we have other creative ventures together but me and him go have a beer every now and then and we go see a movie every now and then when we get a chance and um check out a play or an improv show or just chat like just sit down and grab a pizza and just chat like we try to find those times where yeah we may discuss the business a little bit but we have those times where we can just joke around and you know laugh about things and we bring up personal stuff and we talk about our personal lives so that it's not always about the business so that's really important that's something we talk about as well so i think it's gonna be a really exciting act too so definitely keep a lookout for thursday for that make sure you go check out confessionals all the episodes are available on youtube um they're also on anime unlocked uh which is also supporting all their episodes so definitely take a look at that um, you can find them uh, at Confessionals on uh, uh, Twitter. Uh, con is capitalized, C-O-N, because it's about cons, uh, you know, uh, Comic-Con, stuff like that. So Confessionals. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at LA Hustlecast. You can follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Hustle Podcast. You can also email us at Hollywood Hustle Podcast at gmail.com. And you can visit our website. Yep, we have a website uh, created by the wonderful Michael Tobias. Uh, at, it's uh, HollywoodHustlePodcast.com. Very simple. You can also listen to our episodes there. Buffo, right? That's exciting. So, anyways, thank you so much for listening to me ramble by myself. It's it's kind of sad with Michael not here. It's very lonely. But uh, thank you for keeping me company. And as always, please, please keep up the hustle. <laughs>